Good morning, Willoughby Church. Wow, that was very receptive. Uh, I'm, I'm Andrew. I'm a pastor at Village Church, and we've been renting out your building for the past six months and doing young adult gatherings here. That's part of what I oversee. And uh, it's so cool to be here on a Sunday morning and see how you do things. And I came in and I saw a garden in the lobby. There's lettuce you can just take and mint leaves. And I'm like, this is amazing. I need more of this in my life. Um, so it's an honor to be speaking with you today. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 63. We're going to be looking at a very meaningful psalm to me, but also one to the early church. In fact, there was a time in church history, this psalm was being spoken publicly every single day because of the intimacy and, and the love that David clings to. And so I want to ask us a question is, when hard times come in your life, what is your foundation? I hope you're not going through hard times right now, but the reality is hard times will come. They do come. Many of you, we all know what this feels like. I wish we could all just sip Earl Grey tea lattes and, you know, enjoy the Willoughby traffic and we just coast in life and it's all smooth. I mean, Willoughby's like a zoo these days. I can't get over the traffic. But the, the reality, like there is hard times coming and maybe we're there right now, but where do we turn? And we find hope in David in Psalm 63. And it says at the very top, if you read that, I'm reading from the ESV translation. He says, a Psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. So David had been king for many years and he had a son. One of his sons' name is Absalom. And Absalom, we believe, is actually his favorite son. And there was a family feud and there was a lot of tension and resentment within David and Absalom's relationship, but David deeply cared for and loved Absalom. Nonetheless, Absalom looked to his dad and hoped that he would handle a situation within their family differently than he did. Absalom actually wanted David to kill a perpetrator, but Absalom took the matter into his own hands, killed the man, And then looking to David, only grew more and more in resentment and bitterness and anger towards him to the point where he actually forms a group of people. He starts a rebellion and he overthrows his own dad as king, forcing David in the moment to flee into the desert of Judah where he is grappling to stay alive. He's on the brink of survival, where it's scorching hot by day and cold at night. And he holds on to something in that time. He had lost his kingdom. He'd lost his community. He'd lost his family. He'd lost just about everything in his life. David had been betrayed by his own son. And how does he respond? In verse one, oh God, you are my God earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Why would he earnestly seek God when he'd been abandoned, betrayed, when he'd lost it all? Why would he do that? Because in verse 3, he shows us something. Because your steadfast love is better than life. And what's he saying? More than security, safety, um, being king, being famous, having money, sex, relationships, even surviving the desert. More than that, more than life itself, your love, God, is better. This is the love that sustains me. And so what does this really mean? He's showing us 
that we have a deep need for love that we might not even realize. In psychology, there's this man, Abraham Maslow, in 1943, and he famously coined um, a hierarchy of needs that we have as humans. Okay, he, he has five tiers that he labeled that we have as human beings that motivate our decisions. And he stops, imagine it like a pyramid descending in importance, every single tier. The top tier is self-actualization. This is our need to have personal growth. The next tier and next most important need is safety. It's our physical and mental health. It's financial and job security. The next tier in the middle is love and belonging. So that's intimacy, it's community, what we're doing here, it's friendship. Then the next tier is esteem, how we view ourselves, confidence, respect, self-love, dignity. And then lastly, at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of human needs, he has our survival and physiological needs. So this is food, water, oxygen, shelter, warmth, all good things, right? Like I'm not surviving without oxygen. This is the base need that all of us have, our survival needs. And Maslow, he did a good job, but then David rolls along and he says there's actually a sixth tier. There is a tier that we aren't seeing. It's right at the base of the pyramid. It's more important than survival, and it's the most essential thing for every human being. It holds everything up upon itself, and it's the steadfast love of God. It's the steadfast love that never runs out. It's better than life. And if you're here, maybe you're a new Christian, maybe you're asking questions. We believe in a gospel where Jesus came to demonstrate his love for you. And the question is for all of us, will we embrace the love of God for our lives today? And I think there's three reasons why we don't. Three reasons that we doubt that God's steadfast love is better than life. And that is that God doesn't love me, God won't satisfy me, and God won't protect me. But David gives us a different perspective. So that's what we're going to look at today. So the first is God doesn't love me. This is what we all want. We want love. So we had this night here, we had a bunch of young adults, and we asked them to write on a small piece of paper idols in their life, things that they viewed as ultimate, and then also how they had been hurt. And so they write these things out, and then they put them in a box at the front, and then I went home, and I, I started reading through the papers, and I told, I told them that I was going to read their responses, so I wasn't pulling a fast one on them or anything, and I'm reading their deep heart pains, and I realize everybody is hurting. 71% of the responses from our young adults had to do with them feeling not worthy or not good enough. They don't feel worthy of love. And I think all of us feel this to some degree, do we not? But David discovered this need for love personally. This is what he says in verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. So this is at a time, this is a scandalous remark for David to make because this is, an, this is a polytheistic culture. There are many, many gods you could believe in. Today, we'd say you are God. What you say goes, find God within yourself, you determine what is good. But David showed up and he says, no, oh, he says, oh God, this is Elohim in the Hebrew. It's a very, it's a vague God term. Then he says, you 
alone are my God. You alone, in the Hebrew, are my Ael, meaning there is one God, one personal God. There aren't many gods. And this would be a staggering claim. David is saying the God of Israel is one, and he knows the depths of my soul personally. And this is the thing, is David had made mistakes, right? Like, like he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had Bathsheba's husband murdered. He then married Bathsheba. And some of us might be thinking, can God truthfully love me at the depths of my soul because of what I've done, because of this past week? Because of the way I've treated those people, can he actually, I need to earn love. I need to work for it. I need to prove myself amidst my apathy and my doubt and my fear. But the gospel comes along and says, God loves you right where you are. There's this story of an author, his name's David Bennett. Um, and he writes about his testimony, his story. He grew up in a Christian family and hated everything to do with church and Jesus. So much so that he turned and became an atheist. He hated God. He was a gay activist as well. He thought that God only wanted to stifle his joy and passion in life. And then this one night, he goes to a friend's birthday at a pub. And he shows up. He's talking with his friend. He hadn't seen her in a while. And then she mentions to him, I believe in God. And immediately he was repulsed. And he's like, please tell me she doesn't believe in Jesus. And then she says, I believe in Jesus. And he said, no. His jaw drops. You believe in Jesus? How could you do that? What do you mean? And then she said, but do you believe in Jesus? He said, no chance. I'm an atheist. I do not, I'm a gay activist. God's against me. Then she asks a staggering question that I want all of us to even ask ourselves. She says to this man, have you ever experienced the love of God? And he said, what does that even mean? Of course not. And then she said, can I just pray for you? And he, he was he didn't want to say yes, but he also didn't want to hurt his friend, so he said, okay. And she lays hands on him and begins praying, and immediately he feels something like water coursing through his body from his head to his toe, and peace fills his entire body. And then he hears a voice audibly speak to him, say, do you want me? He was in shock, bewilderment, frightened. He didn't know what to do. The voice again says, do you want me? I'm not making this up. This is in his testimony, his book. Go read his book. And he says it five times. He hears this voice, do you want me? Finally, he says, yes, I want you. And then he said, then will you give your life and believe in my son as your Lord and Savior? And he couldn't do it within, he, he couldn't make that step. But he said, God, is this really you? And this voice said to him audibly again, I am real and true, and I'm calling you, David. Will you accept my son as your Lord and Savior? And he says, yes. And in that moment, fire, he says something like fire started coursing through his body. He begins weeping. He says, weeping and uh, an experience he had never had in his entire life. Tears of freedom and of healing. And this is what David says, 
I was an atheist gay activist, perhaps the least likely of anyone to ever find Jesus. But in that moment, I knew I had become a new person. He goes home. His mom had been praying for him for 11 years. He walks in that door and she says, where were you at tonight? How are you doing? And he says, I, I became a Christian. She says, no. She couldn't believe it. This man, David Bennett, he's now a theologian. He's written books. And he's out there constantly speaking and preaching of the gospel of Jesus. This is a modern day Paul in our society. God came and plucked him out and said, I love you. And this is the truth. God's love is available for everyone, no matter what you've done, no matter where you are. And we don't have to look any further than the cross to prove this. David of Psalm 63 says, I've received forgiveness in God, even though my past sin, I've offered animal sacrifices, I've received forgiveness. He only could have dreamed of beholding the image of the cross of Christ. A love that doesn't make sense. And God can show up in your life in small or big ways. I'm not saying we all got to go and try to hunt down an experience like David Bennett had, because I know that's a rarity. But here's the thing. Do we rest in God's love every day? When we get up in the morning, like this is the tension, right? I pull up my phone. Am I opening the Gmail app or the Bible app? Which one's it going to be today? And I'm looking at both of them and I'm like, "Mm, Bible app. Right? And this is, if we're so consumed by our daily crossword puzzles, by Instagram stories, and we don't give space to receive and sit and rest and walk in the love of God, then we're missing it. We're missing the love that's available for our life today. And I'm telling you, this is what Gen Z needs today. They need you, awakened, alive, filled with the Spirit of God, believing that there's a God who loves each and every person. This is the hope that we hold on to today. You might be thinking, God doesn't love me. But the truth is, nothing can ever change His love for you. And so... We also might doubt that God's love isn't better than life because God, He won't satisfy me. The world is yearning for satisfaction, right? Like everything promises for it. We, we look around, we see billboards, all, all the things that we, the clothes we buy, the, the drinks that we have, the food, the communities we're even part of, we're all looking for happiness. And here's the thing is that movie companies have kind of just figured out everyone's not satisfied in life. They're like, all these people are just unhappy. We're going to release all this content. Everyone's going to binge it because they need to escape their life because they don't think that they're actually satisfied. And so 2021, Cineplex Theaters, they had this new marketing campaign, and I just read an article on it. They say this, Cineplex rolled out new marketing campaign celebrating the unrivaled escape of the big screen experience. Like we can go to the, the theaters and have this unrivaled escape. We can escape our lives and we can escape into this story and we can be satisfied with what's happening on the screen because I'm not happy with my own life. And th- we have all these, we have Cineplex that's just like preying on us. They're just preying on our unsatisfaction that we have. It's like, how can we go out and watch these movies? How can we go to the theaters? How can we go to Cineplex? So anyways 
couple weeks ago, I go to Cineplex, and I'm sitting there, and I'm watching this Spider-Man movie, and Spider-Man's slinging webs, he's saving the day, he's beating the bad guys, he wins the girl, he saves the world, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, wow, this is so good. You know that feeling when you just get lost, and you feel like you're in the story? And then the credits start rolling, and I'm like, oh yeah, right, like I have my own life, and yeah, I have to deal with that. <laughs> That's the thing, it's like we want to kind of escape into something. But look at David. He's saying something so profound in verse 4. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Fat and rich food is pretty common here, right? Like I saw some Big Mac crispy chicken doubled with bacon and stuff. I saw some ad for it. I'm like, okay, yeah, like I shouldn't have that, but I'm totally going to try it. And I did. And it wasn't very good. And we don't take fatty foods as being exquisite or royal or top of the line. But back in David's day, fatty food was the best of the best. It's the king's food. It's a feast. So in the desert, dying of thirst and hunger, David is tapping into something. He's saying, I will be satisfied like a rich, fatty feast at the banquet table as king. What an image. It's like, I don't, I don't know if people look at us as Christians and be like, oh yeah, that's, that's a Christian who's so satisfied, brimming with life. What an image. In the Hebrew, that satisfy means to the full or enriched. So David is saying, in God... My soul will be enriched to the full. Nothing else can satisfy me like you do in your love. That's why Spurgeon, he wrote, there may have been a desert around David, but there was no desert in his heart. Christianity is like this rich oasis where you come and you get lost in the love of Jesus, in the presence of his spirit, in the community of believers, with a purpose and call on your life. And he comes and he satisfies our soul. And this can be hard because this isn't necessarily our experience, is it? Look at David, verse 4. He's tapping into this. He's saying, I will bless you. I will lift up my hands and I will praise you. How is he satisfied? We see these actions. I will bless. I will lift up my hands. I will praise you. He worships God. He gives worth to God. And it would be costly and painful in the middle of the desert to do so. But David often talks about how there is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. He says this in Psalm 50. And this is the key to happiness I've come, come to learn. It's gratitude in God, even when it's hard. Even when it feels like a sacrifice to give thanks. Because everything's going to let us down at some point, but David is saying, you never will, God. I'm believing that you will satisfy me at some point. Key words, you will satisfy me. He's not even experiencing it necessarily in that moment. He's saying, my soul will be satisfied. Last year, I uh, was reflecting on COVID and the fact that I still had not received COVID. I didn't get sick. And I was like, awesome. That's so great. And I was with people that had COVID and I'd be sitting beside them for even like two days. I didn't even know they had it and I didn't get sick. Three weeks later, I had this big vision night, this, this launching of a new ministry I had to really show up for. So I was prepping for that. And then suddenly, I started getting that sore throat. 
And I start getting that cold. I'm like, oh no. I do the test. I have COVID. Of course. So I'm out. I'm bedridden for one week, two weeks. Suddenly COVID turns into bronchitis. I'm sick for three weeks. I have this night coming up. But you know that feeling when you're sick? I, was, I felt like I was completely alone. I felt so unsatisfied in God. I felt my, I had no passion. I was sapped of strength. I had to show up for this night in just a few days. How on earth am I going to do that? I felt I had nothing in me. And I couldn't sleep this one evening. And so I turned on a worship song. It's by an artist named Jeremy Riddle, titled Psalm 63. And he sings the words of this psalm. And I got on my knees and worshipped even when I felt nothing. And it was a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And in that moment, something happened where I just started to feel the embers of coming alive again. The embers of satisfaction and the love of God. And three days later when we did that event, it was incredible. Like we showed up, our team was there. It was unbelievable. God met me in such a powerful way. He satisfied my soul. And I journaled. I looked at my journal from that evening a couple days ago. And I wrote, when you see Jesus, everything melts away. And isn't this it? It's like when we see something so divine, so above us, something that's so mysterious, everything else starts to melt away. And the satisfactions that we have here, they don't seem as precious. And I need to remember this because hard things happen. Change happens. Am I going to give thanks? But this is what I want us to see is we can't limit what God says based off our experiences. Like David says in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Is that possible? Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. Is that my daily experience? At your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Is this a reality in my life? That's just the Old Testament maybe we could think. The New Testament must support my lack of thanksgiving and maybe my lack of satisfaction in God, right? Then Paul shows up and he says, you want to know the will of God for your life? Rejoice always pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. It's like, Paul, no. Are you telling me, this is what I'm called to do? This is the will of God for my life? Like, my mom harps on me with this stuff all the time. Andrew, you got to give thanks. you got to give thanks and think of all the good in your life. I'm like, Mom, no, just, just feel sorry for me. <laughs> but it's like, we have to. This is what he's saying. And so we can then look at our situation. Our kid is off the rails, not following God. Give thanks for your kid. Thank you for the relationship I have with him, God. My life is mundane. Thank you, God, for the faithfulness that you've showed me over the years. My business is failing. Thank you, God, for the opportunity. I even got to start a business. And what are you doing in me today? Maybe it's just an amazing day. The sun's out. It's like, God, thank you for creation. You might be thinking, God doesn't satisfy me, but He alone is the only one who can because He's never changing. And so lastly, we might not think that His love is better than life because we think God won't protect me. Uh, when I was growing up, I have a little sister, and um, I told her this one day, I'm like, hey, Christina, let's go to the playground outside and I'll throw you the ball, the baseball. She said, okay, yeah, that's awesome. 
I said, okay, how about I roll the baseball down the slide and you catch it at the bottom of the slide? She said, yeah, of course, you're my big brother. Of course I would do that. Sounds amazing. And I was like, okay, great. She gets to the bottom of the slide. I'm at the top of this 10-foot slide with the baseball and she's ready to catch it. And then I say, but hey, Christina, how about instead of catching the ball with your hands, you catch it with your mouth? And she's like, you're my big brother, of course I'll do that, sure. You say jump, I say how high. And so she puts her mouth to the slide, ah, I drop the ball, it starts rolling immediately. I'm like, this is not going to end well. Ah, boom, smack, clash, teeth flying, blood squirting, mom's coming out, and she's screaming, I'm gone. Like, I've fled the scene. Big brother Andrew is far away, and I, and I, I just was a disaster, okay? I wasn't the best brother at times. And here's the thing, we may feel like God has dropped the ball on us and we're on our own. In our church over the past nine months, we've had two car accidents that led to fatality. One of them was my friend. We had two people die from cancer young. We've, I've seen divorce and broken family situations and some of these things you, you can't explain. And all you can do is just sit and cry with a family or in your prayer time with God. And Will you protect me, God? Why didn't you protect them? But Scripture gives us some hope. In verse 7, David says, For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Despite David's current situation, he trusted God to protect him. His soul clings to him. He has been his help. But it seems like a trust, no matter what happens, your love is better than life. And Jesus never promised us safety. There will be trouble in this life. That's what he told us. And yet he still gives us safety every day. We're all here in Willoughby, Vancouver, Canada, one of the most privileged places to live. We all woke up with breath in our lungs. God is protecting us physically. We're all here. But Jesus never promises us protection in the way that we may want it. He promises us protection in the way we need it. Not from pain, but protection over our souls. The reality of the story of Psalm 63 is that David fled into the desert because his son overthrew him, Absalom. But it wasn't Absalom's fault. There's actually a deeper reasoning. How can we say that? The truth is, David knew he himself was to blame for what was happening. Because of his past failures with Bathsheba, the murdering of her husband, God spoke through a prophet in 2 Samuel 12 and told David, because of this, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. There was natural consequences to his decisions and David knew he was the result. He was the reason why he was fleeing right now. Because his failure, what God was saying was, it was going to pollute his family, that there would be strife, that there would be dissension, and that there would be chaos. And this is where there's hope. 
when David is sent into the desert alone and betrayed because of his own sin, Jesus is sent into the desert of the cross alone and betrayed because of our sin. It was our sin that put him there. Why? Why did he do it? Why did he go to the cross? So he could secure and protect our souls for eternity. Why would he do that? Because God wants to be with us. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. That's the whole point of the gospel, is that Jesus, God enters into the human story. This is the unique thing about Christianity, the only worldview where God comes into our suffering and bears it upon himself so we would never have to walk the desert of our sin and grief and pain and suffering alone. He did it for us so we wouldn't have to. And so he empathizes with us today. And we might still be thinking, I I don't know what you've been through. And you might be thinking, God, this still hurts. It seems like you've dropped the ball on me. I feel alone in this. There's this beautiful scene of a boy named Diggory um, in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And Diggory's mother is dying of cancer. And he speaks to the lion, Aslan, the Christ figure in the story. And this story depicts the empathetic heart of Jesus. This is what happens. Diggory says to Aslan, but please, please, won't you, can't you, give me something that will cure my mother. Up till then, Diggory had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked up at his face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the golden face was bent down near his own, and great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know grief is great. He's been in it. Jesus knows our suffering and pain because he's took it upon himself. And Christianity doesn't water down the human experience. It's not some fake pulp that says, hey, there's not going to be any suffering you endure. No, there's evil. We're in a broken world. But it's why one author says it's only Christianity that gives us a God with scars. And it's only Christianity that could turn the greatest evil into our greatest good. Meaning evil doesn't get the last word. And it never will. And God may seem distant to you right now in your present moment and situation as if the clouds are blocking the sun. We trust that those clouds will one day dissipate. And we will be able to see God like the sun face to face again. We will experience Him again. We will feel His presence again. And we hold on to the even deeper hope that there will be a day where we are in a new heaven and a new earth, as it says in Revelation, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, and neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. And until then, we walk with a Savior with scars on his hands and feet, the one who endured the desert of the cross because of our sin, so he could always be with us. 
And until the day that, that heaven and earth and the veil is lifted between it and we're face to face with him, we walk with him. And what a glorious day that future day will be. And so we may doubt that God's love is better than life because you think, God won't protect me. But the truth is Jesus died and rose again to protect our very souls and to be with us for eternity. And so to summarize, we might doubt God's love is better than life itself because we think God doesn't love us. But God's constant love for us can never change. You might think that God won't satisfy you. But God in his love is the only one who reliably can. And you might think that God doesn't protect you, but God gave up his son to protect your very soul so he can be with you for eternity. And so how does the psalm end? In verse 12 we see, the king shall rejoice. He starts this psalm in a frail condition. No kingdom betrayed but as he embraces the love of Jesus, he reclaims his calling. He remembers his identity. He remembers who he is. And victoriously, he claims, the king shall rejoice. Even though I have no kingdom now, even though I've been overthrown, this is who I am. David was reminded of who he was and I'll end with this story that helps us see this in our own lives. I just rewatched the movie Blood Diamond, um, exposing um, just some slavery in South Africa where children and, and people were mining for diamonds. And the father in this story, in the movie, his son was taken away from him. The son was actually then taken to be a part of a, uh, a group of soldiers that were incredibly violent. They'd go into villages and simply shoot people. And this son was addicted to drugs because of it. And he had a nickname called Commander See Me No More. His literal identity changed as he was with this group of soldiers that were so evil. And then at the end of the movie, we see a scene between the father and the son. They hadn't seen each other in a long time, but the son had changed so immensely within himself. And the father says, son, it's me. But in that moment, the son pulls out a gun and points it at his own dad. He'd been so brainwashed. He'd just completely lost who he was. He was wrapped up in this identity, this violent, dark identity of commander, see me no more. He's pointing a gun at his son. And the father looks at his son and begins to remind his son of who he is. He says, you are a good boy. He reminds him of his childhood. Your mother loves you very much. You're smart. You love our village. The gun is still pointed at his father, but now tears are streaming down both their faith. And the father starts walking towards his son. And he says, I am your father. And you can come home and be my son. And this is the gospel. In the middle of our desert, our hardship, our sin, we can come home to our Heavenly Father. We are welcomed and we are reminded of who we are. And so the joyful cry of David echoes out through me and you today in that last verse. God, 
Your beloved child shall rejoice in you. Your son, your daughter shall rejoice in you. For your love is better than life. Father, we thank You for sending Jesus. He's our only hope. He's the hope of the nations, the hope of this world. And for all of us here in this room, I ask that Your love would become tangible to us. If we've never experienced the love of God, would we experience it? There's no greater prayer You love to answer than God. I want You. Reveal Yourself to me. Show me Your love. God, this is what our city needs. We need to go to our community and our families and our workplaces carrying this gospel of hope because it's the only thing we have. And so we thank You for Your Son. We thank You for Your love. And we thank You for a man like David who stood strong and persevered in the desert and for meeting him there. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.